All right, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for giving us this wonderful opportunity to go into your word and learn of things that really matter. Things eternal, things of Christ, things of our salvation, our standing, our righteousness, things that tell us of who we are as you see us in Christ. I pray that you cause your people to have this understanding that the only person who matters is Christ and we are only what you call us in him and nothing more and nothing less. The Bible says we are complete in him. So there's nothing that we are lacking as far as you are concerned. And may that be the testimony of your people. We ask for ears and eyes to be opened to this message this morning. Grant me the ability to say that which is true and also for your people to hear that which is faithful and true. May you cause the offense of Christ to shine because for this purpose he was revealed as the rock of offense, the stone of stumbling. We thank you, we honor you for all that you've done already. We pray for blessing again. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, good morning again, one and all. I'm going to make a request to everybody in the hearing of the message to remember a dear brother in Christ, wonderful, wonderful brother. Remember him before the Lord. He is dealing with some health issues, nothing which is beyond the ability of our Lord to deal with. But may you remember him before the Lord. He, if you would hear me, you would say, oh no, don't talk about that. <laughs> but we're still going to say things that are needful. Remember Brother Bill and also his wife. They are wonderful people. I've known them for a long while, and they believe exactly the way that we believe. They listen to all our messages. So be in prayer for them whenever the Lord grants you the memory of it and the words to speak to him. Anyway, this morning we are back in Romans 7. And we're going to be dealing with the same verses, verses 1 to 6, as we did last week. And you would think, well, last week's message was more than an hour, 40-something minutes. How do you still have more stuff to say <laughs> from, the verse, from the same verses? Actually, we do. I could do a third one from the same verses even two hours long. <laughs> Teaching is needful. It's desperate. In the church, there's very little teaching that's going on. There's very little handling of the text. And because of that, God's people are famished for Lack of understanding. 
for ignorance because the shepherds are not working the text. They are not speaking to the glory of God. Preaching is saying things to the glory of God. That's what preaching is. The glory of God as has been revealed in Christ Jesus. It's not to make anybody happy. If anyone is happy, it is he or she who believes the truth. Otherwise, it is offensive. So we have to bring the offense. So we'll read the text again for the benefit of those who have never had Romans 7. Don't think everybody has ever had Romans 7. You'd be surprised. <laughs> Romans 7 verses 1 to 6. Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, recorded for us and said, Oh, do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be caught in adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oddness of the letter. And that's the word of the Lord. And we have only one title. Last week's message was delivered from the law, set free from the law. Those who know the law. And today's title is the certificate of divorce and Romans 7. The certificate of divorce and Romans 7. The theological connections. As Berean Sovereign Grace Church, we search the scriptures and we teach a lot of messages that relate the law to the gospel because it is a recurrent and pervasive theme in all of the Bible. Law, gospel, is very pervasive, right from Genesis. And this is why those who do not understand what God is saying about the law and gospel will call us anti 
no means. Who call us those who hate the law. But making a law gospel distinction is not an anti-law idea, as many people suppose, because of their unbelief. Much of this is not just lack of understanding, it's just pure unbelief. Making the distinction between law and gospel is a gospel idea. It's a gospel necessity. It is imposed on the gospel by reason of God's own glory. Okay? So it is not imposed by us as a church. It is imposed by God by reason of who he is and the manner in which he determined to do our salvation. So many professing Christians have not understood the gravity of the matter, the matter of making the proper distinctions between law and grace, because they do not see any problem with the law. Thus, they do not see, in consequence of that, they do not see the preeminence of Christ, because they never connected to the preeminence of Christ. They never connected to the primacy and sufficiency of God's grace alone. And they never make, make the connection to God's glory. They don't. And many will come and say, grace is unmerited favor. And they put a period. They end there. But that's not enough. That's true, but that's not enough. Grace, this is what grace actually means. Grace means theologically God doing what the sinner cannot do. That's what grace is. God doing what the sinner cannot and could not do. So grace is not just some theoretical concept. It is not an empty concept. It is God doing. It is God working. It is God providing. It is God finishing. It is God perfecting. And being pleased by the work of his own hands. That's grace. God doing everything that Sean could never do. Not even conceived needed to be done. It was beyond all of us to know, understand, appreciate that we needed salvation. God had to bring that to us. So many who mix law and grace do not see any problem with the law because as I said, or as Paul said in Galatians, they are not hearing what the law is saying. They are not really telling people what the law is saying to a sinner. Not the law that the U.S. Congress is passing. <laughs> 
The law of God. The law is calling for their heads to be chopped off. And with nothing to give to stop the chopping. Why shall you give in exchange? They are not hearing the thunder as Israel did on Mount Sinai. They are not seeing the lightning, the darkness and the gloom. That's Mount Sinai testimony against the sinner. Darkness, gloom, hopelessness. And they're not trembling. Israel saw God on Mount Sinai. And they trembled. Even Moses trembled according to the book of Hebrews. And Israel said, Moses, you tell God not to talk to us like that. It's scary. And God's point was... This is the testimony of the law against you. And these people are not hearing Mount Sinai. And that's why they have the time and the audacity to get their cooking utensils and start mixing law and grace. This morning, much of the preaching is going to be people just mixing Play-Doh, law and grace. Mixing it. (laughs) A lot of messy. Making a mess. So we do not ever apologize for making the appropriate and scriptural law and gospel distinctions. They are necessary if we should understand not just the scriptures, but Christ himself. Because the law is there to set the stage, the foundation, That we may understand who Christ is. And the teaching of law and gospel distinction is not a New Testament invention. It was always running through the veins of the Old Testament testimony as we have demonstrated over and over. But before we go and get some things together, we... We'll revisit what Paul has argued already. Okay? Paul has come in in Romans 7 to give more meat, put more flesh to the skeleton of what he has said before, to give more theological substance and discussion to some very fundamental statement that he made in Romans 6, Romans 6, 14. In Romans 6, 14, this is what Paul has said. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And this was an indicative statement, a statement of fact of what box the believer stands in because of Christ. This is how you relate to sin on account 
of what Christ has done, sin shall not have dominion over you. So this statement is not an instruction to do anything or be anything by something that you do so that sin may not have dominion. It's not an instruction. It's a declaration. This is the reality of things. Sin shall not have dominion over you because you are not under the law, but are under grace. That's very clear and emphatic distinction. And that distinction must be maintained, must be defended, must be declared from the housetop. Get the biggest ladder and get to the tallest building and declare this. Because it is a gospel distinction and a gospel truth. The believer is not under the dominion of sin for one reason only. And it's not found in them. It is not because of fasting or because of a New Year's resolution to fight sin harder and longer. I waste some of my time watching these videos online. I saw a video of a cobra fighting a mongoose. And the fight was bloody. The mongoose, though it had many or has had many victories, in many of the videos that I've seen, it seems to always uh, be victorious. It kills the snake and have it for lunch. But it seemed in this video that the venom got to it. It got a beating. It was beaten. The mongoose fought hard, but to its death. It kicked the proverbial bucket. You, you, you could praise it for, for its diligence, its commitment to win the fight, but it lost. It died right on top of the snake, actually, on the side of the snake. In high school, we had this series of books called The Hard Boys. From the name, you can tell what that was about. Boys trying to be hard. To show that there was something. And it doesn't matter how you want to be a hard boy or girl with respect to the law. The end of it is certain. It is death. Doesn't matter the effort. Because the power of sin is in the law and the wages of sin is death. The wages, the payout for you not doing everything that the law says to be done is always death. So you can't do the law halfway. There's no excuse. You can say, oh, we had a power outage. Oh, there was no food in the house. That's why there's no mitigating circumstances when it comes to you not doing the law. So if there should ever be any victory for you and I, you and me, the sinner, 
it will only come one way. And it has already come. That's why we are preaching it. It's already here. It is not in our striving. It is not in us doing. But in that God has put us in this thing called grace. In this person called Christ. Because if you remain under law, sin automatically gets the power. That's how things connect together. As long as you put yourself, remain under the law, sin automatically gets the power. When you turn on the faucet, water is going to come out. That's what turning the faucet on does. It opens the water to come through. Okay? So sin automatically gets the right, the authority to have dominion to rule as to bring death and condemnation to you. That's how these things work together. So let's talk dominion. Let's talk dominion. What does dominion mean? Dominion means the power, the right to govern and control, the right, pay attention to the right to govern and control. So it is a reference to sovereignty. Sin has the right to govern and control under the law. This is its jurisdiction given it by God. In and under grace alone does sin not have the jurisdiction to kill. No venom to kill. No more right to kill. In grace, under grace, sin has no right to kill. This by God's determination. Not because we stop sinning. Why, 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 why? Why is sin not able to kill you under grace? Because it is not the one that rules in grace. It is not the one that's making the judgment in grace. It is Christ who is making the judgment. It is Christ who is on the, on the throne. Sin lost its sovereign right, if we could speak it that way, to cause condemnation in Christ. It lost its sovereign rights to kill, to condemn in Christ. And that's why Romans 1 says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who stop sinning. <laughs> no, there's no verse like that. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In Christ. That's Romans 8 verse 1. And that, my friends, is what it means 
to not be under law. It means to be in Christ. Those are the only two modes of existence. Under law or in Christ. So sin and law represent a different power, a different space, a different country, a different sovereignty with a different outcome, different wages, different payouts. Christ Jesus, on the other hand, representing grace, is the sovereign. He is the ultimate sovereign. And he has removed the keys of death and condemnation from sin and law. Christ alone has the power to remove power from sin and law. And that is why to the woman who was caught in adultery, he said, well, who condemns thee? Because the law had come after he had to condemn it. Because of a sin. Christ Jesus comes and takes the power out of the law and says, oh no, I'm superior. I'm the sovereign. Neither do I condemn thee. So this is amazing stuff to me. And that's why we keep drawing deeper into the meaning of what is being said or implied by these very statements. And we have to keep squeezing the text so that we may get more gospel juice. Okay? So the redeemed are not under the law for anything. Because law and grace are not the same thing. The United States and North Korea, they are countries, but they are not the same country. There are people who live in North Korea, there are people who live in the United States, but they are not the same country. They do not have the same constitution. And this I say only for the purpose of emphasizing the distinctions. So Apostle Paul revisits the idea to explain why the redeemed cannot be under the law. There was some transaction that happened that took some people out of a particular zip code, a particular address in which the law had dominion. Christ Jesus took a people from a particular zip code address, particular country, where sin and law had dominion to kill them. And he put them in a different place. So Paul begins in Romans 1, Romans 7 verse 1, sorry. And says, oh, do you not know, brethren? For I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. To those who understand the law, it is an established fact that the law has dominion to rule control over a person as long as the person lives or is alive. And once this is established, we can't violate 
this principle without also violating the very idea of law. The law that keeps haunting and harassing the people at the cemetery to collect a debt over someone who has died is a stupid law. A senseless law. Because there's nothing that a dead person can give it as to satisfy it. If I die owing $20 million, they cannot recover it from my casket. It's not coming. They can dig all they want. They can. It's not coming. But I'm dead. So it stands to reason that if and when a person dies, then they have also died to the power and force and jurisdiction of the law that used to rule over them. The state of Ohio has no more power over you because you have died. Now, this is the first line of the development of the principle. Now, let's move on to the second stage of the application of this principle of the law in regards to the law of marriage. And pay attention that Paul purposefully talks of the marriage covenant from the side of the woman being under the law of a husband. And Paul is not saying by that, that if the husband would go and marry another, he hasn't committed adultery either. But Paul's argument is very purposeful because he is working to prove a point, a theological point, a gospel point. So, the woman represents something that is greater than herself. She is a picture of the church. That's why he came this way, to make his arguments. So, verse 2, Paul says, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to a husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released, set free from the law of her husband. So the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as the husband is alive. And the woman under the law remains bound to the obligations, to the duties of her husband as stipulated by her husband to perform them as long as he lives. As long as he lives. That's very critical to the argument. As long as he lives. Okay? If and when the husband dies, she is set free from the law of a husband. In other words, she does not take orders from him because he is not there anymore to command her on what to do, what to cook, what to wear, where to go, when to be back home. She doesn't go to the cemetery and say, oh, honey, do you think I, this dress looks nice? Should I wait? Do you think I should go see my friend? Should I go see my parents? No, she does not answer to him anymore. That's clear teaching. To all peoples on this planet, 
the educated, the fools, the rich, the poor, they all understand this is a matter of principle. It's very well understood. But now, Paul takes this argument further and higher from the lesser to the greater. This kind of argumentation is called from the lesser to the greater. Coming from a lesser point and you use that to build up a much greater truth. So he says, verse 3, so, so then if while her husband leaves, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if the woman wears some smarty pants and decides to marry another man, whilst her husband is still alive, she will be called an adulteress. So that's a label. And there are consequences to that under the law. She does not get to do that under the law and be posting it on social media to tell her friends and the whole world and get away with it. No, the law says she must be stoned. She must die as what was about to happen to the woman who was caught in adultery. They wanted to stone her because that is the judgment of it. But if she is smart enough, she can wait for the death of her husband. And then what happens? But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. So the death of her husband is what is what sets her free from the law of her husband, from the covenant of her husband. Pay attention to that. Death. Death is what alone separates the woman from remaining under the law of her husband under this provision. She is made free by that which brings her grief. Supposing that her husband was a wonderful man, but if her former husband was a horrible man, a terrible man, an abusive man, then his death is also the day of her freedom, is the day of her liberation. But in the event of this happening, she has now the freedom to be married to another. She has the legal right to be married to another and not be called a lawbreaker, an adulteress, and not attract the wrath of the law on herself. So her second marriage works and is blessed even under the law by reason that her former husband died. So she has transacted everything according to the demands of the law. So in the gospel context, what happened? Because that's not the end of the argument. In the gospel context, 
How is all the above to be applied and to be understood because that is what these things were given to preach. They were not given for men and people to stone women caught in adultery. Because all are adulterers by nature. As Jesus said to the Jews, let him who has no sin, let him who is not an adulterer or adulteress cast the first stone at her. Let me see them. Let me see one who is righteous. Hear what God says. In verse 4 of Romans 7. Therefore, my brethren, you also. So that's limiting to, limiting those who benefited from this transaction. It's not for everybody. It's not everybody who died to the former husband. It's my brethren, you my brethren who believe are they who have this kind of relationship to God. You also have become dead to the law when you believed and you baptized. When you stop sinning. No, it's not there. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. That you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So all who are called their brethren, redeemed of Christ, have also become dead to the law through the body of Christ. So they are taking, they are feeling the shoes of the woman. Dead to the law, not at faith, but at the death of Christ. That's where all the elect died to the law. Because Christ did not die when you believe. He died before we showed up. Justified not at faith, but at the death of Christ, because that's where the transaction is happening. So that clearly defines for us who this husband who had to die was. It is the law. The law must die as a husband. But how did the law die? We answer that in a different way that we've taught before. How did John the Baptist die? He was decapitated. His head was. John the Baptist represented not just the prophets, but the law, because he was a Levite. John the Baptist was a Levite. His father was Zechariah, who was a high priest. And that's why Jesus, when he talked about John the Baptist, he said the law and the prophets, because John represented 
the law as a Levite and the prophets as a prophet. So when Jesus showed up, he did not take John the Baptist out to lunch. He said, oh, here, they're cousins, by the way. All this wonderful stuff. Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins. They were brothers, if you want to speak in the nature of the culture. Because cousins are brothers. If they're girls, they're sisters, actually, they are. How related they are, this is Levi and Judah. Jesus is Judah. John is Levi. Levi, who is married to the church, must die. And so, John the Baptist comes and says, he must, what? Decrease. And he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. So when Jesus showed up, John the Baptist had to decrease by way of decapitation, by way of death, so that Christ would remain alone and remain with the bride. As John had said, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. I'm not the bridegroom. Because people were coming and saying, are you the Christ? In other words, are you the husband to the church? And John said, no, I am not. So who are you? You tell us then. <laughs> are you the one to come? Said, no, I'm not the Christ. I'm the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. Prepare ye the way for the Lord. The law and the prophets were there to prepare the way for Christ. And when the Christ has shown, showed up, they must decrease. They must be removed. And John the Baptist says, I must decrease, he must increase. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. Therefore, this joy of mine is made full. I love those words from John. I must decrease. He must increase. I must decrease by way of death. Because people go and caught that. And say, I must decrease. And he must increase. They're thinking, oh, for them is to stop buying five pairs of shoes to one pair of shoes. That's the decreasing that they're talking about. No. It's death. It's death that John is talking about. John was already living in the wilderness, eating locusts and honey dip. Just dipping his locusts in honey. And what do you decrease from? We are already living in the wilderness. He didn't have a whole lot of clothes either. <laughs> and he says, I must decrease. Decrease into where? Where do you decrease to when you're already living in the wilderness? With jackals and chimpanzees and whatever else. So the point is, people don't know how to read these things. The decreasing of John the Baptist is misconstrued 
It was speaking to the end of the law and the prophets. Jesus said it. The law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. That's the cutoff point. What happened to John? He died. He was decapitated. Why? Because the bride belongs to Christ. The bride does not belong to the law and the prophets. The bride belongs to Jesus. So the believers, the redeemed, are dead to the law. And that is a statement of fact. It is not there to be argued with because to say otherwise is to deny the very gospel transaction by which we are now called righteous and the bride of Christ. If the redeemed are not dead to the law, then they are still under the condemnation of sin and therefore they are not redeemed. They are still in their sins because to keep pressing the law on the redeemed is to deny the death of Christ which ended their marriage to it. Which set them free from it. Remember Paul says to that which to which we were held by. The redeemed could not be married to Christ as long as the law was still standing. As long as the covenant of Mount Sinai was still binding and commanding us as a husband. Because if that would happen, Without the death of Christ, that would have been adultery. And God uses or used the picture of our marriages to bring out the higher, the spiritual, the gospel truth. And says the law was like unto a husband that we could not run away from and be married to another and not incur its wrath. The law is a wrathful husband. You mess up, he's coming after you to kill you, to have you hanged, to curse you. So the law had to die. It could not be left limping either, nor in a wheelchair, because in a lot of gospel confessions, they have a law that is in a wheelchair, still limping around. But someone had to kill it, in other words, bring it to its end. So you hear the New Testament say, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. And that in a particular and peculiar way, Paul says it was through the body of Christ, through the death of Christ, that the old marriage was ended, the old husband died and was buried, and our freedom was accomplished. And so Paul would say in Galatians 5, verse 1, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. I like the New American Standard rendering of this verse. It was for freedom that Christ Set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. 
and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. It was a freedom that Christ set us free. Set us free from what? From the Taliban? (laughs) From the law? From the yoke of slavery? The old abusive husband? Because the law as a husband demands a few things that you can't give it. It's like having a husband who has extremely high standards and demands that you cannot perform and yet is very unforgiving every time you mess up. Whatever you do, it's going to find something wrong with it. Whatever you cook, it doesn't matter what it is, they are not going to be satisfied. So that's your relationship to the law. So you have to die to that husband. And God says, that's a yoke of slavery. And Christ has set you free from it. There's nothing for you there. There's neither righteousness, no sanctification by the law. There's no sanctification by the law. It's just made up. It's not anywhere in the text. All of salvation is of grace. It is all of Christ. And as I said earlier, we are complete in him. So we are married to him who rose from the dead. So as long as he had not died. Pay attention. As long as Christ had not died, the law was still standing. Waiting for the death of Christ to bring it to its end. So we see what the death of Christ accomplished in this matter. It brought the death of the old husband. Also, the death of Christ brought us the legal right to be married to him without being called adulteresses. But the ones who are changing husbands, it's not Christ. Christ has always had one bride. But we've had more than one husband. That's why we are, we have the language of adultery. This is in reference to our sinfulness. As human beings, it's not really Ultimately, about just what you and I do on a daily basis. God's major point in talking about adultery is to show us the matter of sin. In other words, the death of Christ removed the curse that we would have incurred if we were married, if we were to be married to him, with the law still standing. Christ removed the curse because we are the ones who have to be married. We are the ones who are looking for a husband. And the condition was for us to be married legally to Christ. Our former relationship marriage covenant had to be abrogated by way of fulfillment, it had to be fulfilled. Every jot and tittle had to be fulfilled 
for our sake. So Christ Jesus became not just sin for us, but the curse for us. Two, that we may be called the righteousness of God in him, for cursed is one who is hung on a tree. Christ is now married for the first time. You and I are called holy. We are called righteous. And Kathleen is above reproach. It doesn't matter what Paul thinks. It's scandalous. She knows herself. Paul knows her. But that's what God says. She is above reproach. In the courts of God, there's nothing that can bring against her. Okay? So it must be emphasized that the death of Christ also brought the justification of his bride, the church. Christ Jesus could not be legally married to his bride if she had not been justified by and in his own death. The death of Christ was also the justification of his bride. And these are transactions, transactions happening on Mount Calvary. And in the spiritual and legal realm, in the court of God, the death of Christ was also a marriage ceremony. Christ Jesus taking possession of his bride, the church that he purchased at the cost of his own blood. Remember the redemption price that was at the cost of his blood. Even the purchase of the potter's field that was full of broken pots, broken pottery. Remember the money that Judas had used to betray Jesus. He went and threw it into the treasury and the rulers, the priests, they took it and said, this is blood money. And what did they do with that money at which Christ was valued? They went and bought a potter's field for the burial of strangers. Potter's field bought at the cost of the blood of Christ to bury strangers, pottery, broken people who now have a resting place in this field, the New Testament purchased at the cost of the blood of Christ. Okay? The blood of Christ was his dowry price. When you get married in Zimbabwe and a lot of other cultures of the world, the man is he who makes the dowry price. The man goes to the family of the woman that he wants to get married to and makes the payment that they may be given the legal right to possess the daughter as their wife. The man always goes. We're going to see Christ coming from heaven to go where the bride is. 
and making the payment there that you may take possession of the woman and go back to the father. So the dowry price is a sacrifice that is to be paid to possess the bride. And Christ Jesus paid his dowry price in the form of his blood because that's what the father demanded of him. So we cannot say that Jesus came and died and went back to the father without his bride. It's impossible. That would have been a failed mission. So you cannot say Jesus did not justify his church when he died. It's impossible. You cannot say that. If you say otherwise, you don't know the gospel. You don't. So the gospel transaction was such that one ex-husband had to die that we may not be single or widowed, but in order that we may be married to another, that we may bear fruit unto God. And the implication is that the law is not the God-given way to bear fruit unto him. In other words, Adam also was not the way for us to bear fruit unto God. Why? Because Adam sinned the law, the flesh, are in the same WhatsApp group. They have the same outcome. No fruit unto God, they all bring death and condemnation. Look at that. I'm not even making it up. Adam, sin, law, flesh. It's the same WhatsApp group. So when you're reading the scriptures, you have to know that where you see flesh, Adam is there. Law is there. When you see the Spirit, it's grace, it's Christ, it's justification, it's everything that is in Christ. And the distinction, the difference is not made by you and I. It's God, it's Christ who makes the difference. Okay, But in Christ we bear fruit, the fruit of life and righteousness to God in him. We bear fruit that is acceptable to God. And this is not our own obedience. It is not our own righteousness. Because a lot of people who run to this and say, see, I like to see his fruit so that I may determine if he is saved. No, no one called you to be a fruit inspector. Okay? The fruit here in reference is the obedience of Christ that has brought us eternal life and righteousness before God. That's the fruit that the bride of Christ has. Ecclesiastes 9.7. It's a very important one. You should, you should always know this first. We've talked about it some hundred messages ago. Ecclesiastes 9.7. Solomon says, 
Go eat your bread with joy. And drink your wine with a merry heart. And this is the reason. For God has has already accepted your works. How is that possible? Because we have been accepted in the works of Christ. We have been accepted in the beloved. So God says, if you understand this, be merrymaking, be happy, because you have been accepted. You have been accepted. Verse 5 and verse 5, Romans 7. For when we were in the flesh, so you see that when Paul says flesh and law, they are interchangeable. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. So to be in the flesh is in reference to being under the law. It's not being mean. Because if you're mean, people are like, oh, that's the flesh. Yeah, to some level. But at this level of discussion, that's not the category. According to Paul, the flesh is synonymous with being under the law. Being married to Moses, being in Adam, under dominion of sin, death, and condemnation, that's being under the flesh. So sinful passions, indwelling, seemingly lying asleep, lying dormant, but being aroused, being called to action by every commandment of the law, being given the strength to do what sin does, which is what? To bear fruit unto death. That's all that sin does. Bear fruit unto death. As long as you remain under the domain of the flesh, the domain of the law, of which the redeemed are not. They've been translated from that domain, right? Into the marvelous light of his beloved son. So the law brings fruit to death. Grace, on the other hand, marriage to Christ brings fruit to life. So the fruit that we bear to God in this context is not coming from our own fruitfulness and obedience to God. It is fruit that comes to God on our behalf by reason of our being married not to the law, but to Christ. And as I said, it is holiness that we bring as fruit, it's righteousness, it's redemption, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ has become to us. Christ has become for us the wisdom from God, the righteousness, 
the sanctification, which is holiness, the redemption. Christ, the satisfaction of God's wrath. In other words, Christ has perfected us. And this is the fruit that we bring to God on account of Christ. Verse 6, and that will be our last verse from Romans 7. But now we have been delivered from the law. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So now is speaking to time. In this present time, in the context of what Christ accomplished by his dying, this is how we stand in relation to the law. But now, we have been delivered. We have been set free from the law. We are not bound by, you can't be bound by something that you've been delivered from. It doesn't make sense. You see by this that the law is what actually stood between you and God. And that to get you condemned. But how were we set free? Paul says, having died to what we were held by. So he's still making the arguments of that woman. Continuation of the argument, but being applied at a higher level. So we died. How did we die when we haven't died? We died by reason of union and representation. God sees all his church as having died with Christ and resurrected with him. That's the only way we could have died. So Paul is saying the law imposed a captivity situation to everyone from which captivity we needed a ransom to be paid for our deliverance from that which held us in sin. So that which held us had power. We could not set ourselves free. We were held in sin and its consequences, death and condemnation. But we were set free. And having thus been set free, now to the reason why we were set free, among many other reasons, that we should worship God in the newness of the Spirit. What does that mean? It means newness of the covenant. For the matter of approach, Paul, is to approach God. We have the right to approach him. How do you approach this president of the United States? You just don't walk into the White House. It's not going to happen. You need a secret clearance. You cannot just show up before God. 
you need a secret clearance of righteousness. Christ Jesus is your mediator and imputed righteousness. So the newness of the spirit is newness of the new covenant and the rights that the new covenant gives you to fall back on. And Paul says, not in the oldness of the letter. Basically, that's a reference to the, to the law, the oldness of the letter that is the law. That is clear teaching, that is a distinction. That's what Christ has done for us. He died to destroy the marriage, that we may be married to him, that we may bear fruit to God, and that we may worship God in the newness of the Spirit. And that means the redeemed do not worship God by way of law, but by way of the Spirit, which thing the Lord Jesus already anticipated when he was talking to Sister Sarah Samaritan <laughs> in John 4.23. You have to hear this. John 4.23. Did I say our message is long? We haven't even started. <laughs> it's wonderful stuff, though. John 4.23. The Lord said, but the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshippers, that's in keeping with Romans 7, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. So the redeemed worship God in spirit and truth and not in the oddness of the letter of the law. That's clear teaching. So this is what Paul has said in respect of the believer's relationship to the law. Paul has said they cannot be married to both the law and Christ. That is false teaching. Law and grace is a forbidden marriage. But was this Paul's invention no, we'll backtrack and go to Jesus' teaching and we'll finish our message in the Old Testament. Backtrack again from Jesus all the way back to the Old Testament and prove the same thing. God taught the same truth but in a different way and without, and without a proper law, gospel, hermeneutic these things remain hidden to the eyes of many. The essence of the truth remains the same, but the pictures that God used are different, even if they relate to marriage. So, we hear from the Lord himself a different way to slice and dice the same teaching, and in the teaching, the matter of marriage and divorce are at play again. And it was an offense to the Jews then who were hearing as it is still in our day. And I'm going to preface this and say, 
I believe close to 99.9% of the church world think that the matter of divorce and marriage is about human marriages and their divorce. That's what they think. The problem is they have not understood the matter properly. Using a gospel-centered hermeneutic, that is a gospel way of interpreting these matters. And so in the bigger scheme of things, they miss the point entirely. And it is offensive to some who will hear, because I've talked about this in another message that I titled The Certificate of Divorce. Wonderful message. But people read it from the standpoint of their own marriages and miss the point of the message, which was Christ. But this is about Christ and Moses. And we never apologize for Christ. Let's go to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, a discussion of marriage and divorce between Jesus and the Pharisees. Matthew 19, beginning at verse 1. Matthew says, when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And that was a very important question that the Pharisees posed to Jesus. And I read that in the Jewish nation, there were competing schools of thoughts, two competing schools of thought in this time with regards to the matter of divorce. There was some school that said, one could divorce their wife at will, like at will employment here in the United States, where, or which says, one can leave or be fired without any reason. If I do not want to go back to work tomorrow, I can just not even show up, not even tell them. Or I can just go tell them and say, I'm out of here. Or they could fire me. They could just send me a text and say, oh, don't come to work tomorrow. That's it will. They don't even have to give a reason. So essentially, that's what these guys are saying. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Whatever comes to my mind. I don't like your makeup today. Uh, you're out. And then there was another school that said the woman could only be divorced if she committed adultery. Only. So the Pharisees came. They always wanted to bring these seemingly sticky issues. Red meat stuff. <laughs> they come to test Jesus' thinking on the matter. But they obviously did not come up with this matter. This is where people miss God's sovereignty in the matter of the revelation of Scripture. 
Because people think Jesus is reacting to their question. No, God is the one sovereignly causing them to bring the matter to discussion so that Jesus can teach the matter of salvation. A lot of people miss that. So the question was for Jesus to interpret for them. To interpret the legal aspects of marriage and divorce. And they could not have come to a better person for this than Christ Jesus. You could not come to a better person for any question than Jesus Christ. Verse 4 of of Matthew 19, and he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Like, okay. So Jesus drew them back to Genesis 1, verse 27, to the book of beginnings and said, let us go to the foundation of things. Him who made them, who created them, made them, assigned them, male and female, and those are the only allowable combinations by him who made them, not by some stupid legislation. No personal pronouns, whatever, this and that. No gender neutrality, foolishness. If you ask Jesus, this is what he's going to say. So what do you think about this whole issue of transgenderism? Jesus says, "Um, have you not read? (laughs) Have you not read? He who made them, who created them, made them male and female. No confusion. The one who made them had no confusion. But let's continue. So what's next? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. The two being joined together become one flesh. The two being joined together become one flesh. And that's why in the gospel sense, the church is called the body of Christ. The one with Christ. But let's go to the original telling of the story in Genesis 2, verse 20 to 24. Genesis 2, 20 to 24. Moses recorded and said, by God's instruction. The man gave names to all the people, to all the cattle, and to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now born of my bones in flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. And the reason for that, because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And it sounds like Moses is the one writing, but Jesus says, it's God who said it. 
in the words of Jesus in Matthew 19, he says it's actually God who said it. So the woman being made from a man and for the man, the church being formed from the man and for the man, Christ Jesus, formed from the side of Jesus by his death. In other words, the cross being also a maternity delivery word of the church. That's where the church was given birth. The fluids of birth were given water and blood. The church being birthed out of the side of Christ as Eve came from the side of Adam. This is the reason, God says, why the man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, to his bride, and they shall become one flesh, united. But there's a problem. There is a problem here. Because when you look at all marriages across the world, the woman is the one who leaves her father and mother. It is the very opposite of what God said. So was Jesus mistaken in his interpretation? No. We are the ones who are mistaken. Not understanding what Jesus was preaching in Genesis 2 and the creation account and also in Matthew 19. It's people who are not understanding the gospel aspects of what is being said. Let us hear Paul who touched and made commentary on the same issue with God-given understanding and with a proper hermeneutic. Since the scriptures cannot be broken, Ephesians 5, Sean was already going there, Ephesians 5, 28 to 32. Ephesians 5, 28 to 32. Here is Paul's take of the same conversation and how he applies it. And this is a matter of husbands loving their wives. He says, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body. We are members of his body. The church is the body of Christ. The church is as if it is the physical body of Christ. That's what that is saying. Now, to the inspiration for his teaching, he goes to Genesis. Verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now he gives commentary, verse 32. This is this mystery is great. So he's saying that the matter of marriage 
is not as what many people think. It's higher than what many people think. It's a big mystery. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So that's what defines the mystery. The mystery of marriage is about Christ and the church. So the church is the wife and Christ is the husband. So it is Christ who left his father in heaven that he may come down to earth to be married to his bride. Because his bride was not in heaven. His bride was here on earth. But the wife to be married had issues. He found her married to all kinds of things. Married to sin, married to law, married to death, married to condemnation. So he cannot just take the wife. Something must happen before he can repossess his wife back. Someone must die. Some old husband must be eliminated. But that is not the only way to end a marriage under the law. Even in our own laws, that's not the only way to end marriage. Okay? Let's keep going. Matthew 19, verse 6. Jesus says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Let no man break asunder. So once the husband has come and has been joined to his bride, then the two cannot be separated by a man. And that is essentially speaking to a higher gospel truth. To say Christ cannot be separated from his bride. What shall separate us from Christ? In other words, salvation cannot be lost. And some person is going to say, oh, salvation can be lost. I'm like, don't know how to read. Okay? Salvation cannot be lost. Because you have to break Christ from his bride. It's not going to happen. Jesus says, what, jo- what God has joined together, let no man separate. In the same way, he's saying the same thing as Jesus said in John 10, that no one is able to snatch his sheep from his hands or the father's hands. Okay. Now, the Pharisees have understood this. Essentially, they've understood that the marriage should not be dissolved. So they say to him, why then did Moses, that's verse 7 of Matthew 19, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And that is a very good question. It's a correct question to ask. Why then? Did God fail? Was God overpowered by the sinfulness of men? Because what we see is that people in the church understand the matter of marriage as it relates to Christ. But they do not know that divorce 
also relates to the gospel. They think divorce is an aberration. No, it's part of the plot. It's part of the design. It's part of telling the story of Christ. And divorce here is not in losing salvation. But divorce in how Christ to redeem them who were married to something. And ending their marriage to it. Because divorce is ending a marriage to something or to someone. So because of lack of understanding of how divorce fits into the gospel narrative, people end up using this text of Matthew 19 for church discipline. Oh, I'm telling you. I see it everywhere, on Facebook, on Twitter, on wherever there is a marriage issue. But Jesus said in Matthew 19, like, no, you don't get it. It's not for church discipline. It is for extolling the work of Christ in salvation and how you got to be married to Jesus. And I'm going to say this. 99.9999%. You can go look for messages on someone audio or whatever. On this text, it's going to be church discipline. No one is going to bring the gospel. No one is going to bring the gospel. Because of that negative aspect of divorce. Like, say divorce? There's no way. But the Pharisees rightly asked and said, I'm going to wait this. I'm going to wait this. Why then did Moses command her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Moses is the law. When the Bible says Moses, it is talking of law. Why then did the law command her to be given a certificate of divorce? So the law commanded that a certificate of divorce be given to the woman for her to be sent away. And a certificate of divorce would mean what? It would mean that she was no longer under the law of her former husband, and thus could be married to another in that society without being condemned. So Moses is the law, and the law was given authority by God to give the woman, the church, the certificate of divorce, to say there's nothing between you and me anymore, Go and find another who can deal with your issues. So the provision of the certificate of divorce was put in in anticipation of the coming of Christ who would come and be married to the church with his issues. <laughs> so Jesus' answer to their second question as to the why of divorce was. Here the answer, verse 8. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. So why did Moses 
the law permit divorce? Jesus said, because of the hardness of heart. The Greek word translated hardness of heart. Hardness of heart is actually one word. It's a compound word. I don't know if I pronounced this correctly, but it's sclerocardian. When I break it into two, I should be able to pronounce it better. Compound of two words, scalos and cardian. So scalos you found or found its way into the English as sclerosis. And cardian, that's hard. So according to Merriam-Webster Dictionary, sclerosis is a pathological hardening of tissue, especially from overgrowth of the fibrous tissue. So when you have that, you have, that's sclerosis. And you have the cardian, that's the heart. So you have sclerosis of the heart. Jesus said, the certificate of divorce was necessitated by your lack of righteousness, by the hardening of your heart, and that obviously due to sin, that's what is driving all this. And that causes what in the heart as in the body, hardness. The writer of Hebrews talks about the deceitfulness of sin, the hardness also of the heart, which is unbelief, spiritually. So everything considered. The certificate of divorce was necessitated by sin. It was God's provision because of sin. It was God's provision so that we may not be logged under law. There had to be an escape clause from the law to allow for the end of that marriage. That's why the provision was given. Okay. But under the original design, they should not be divorced because the original design was not for men and women. The original design was for Christ and the church. And with respect to Christ and the church, there's no certificate of divorce because Christ will never divorce the church. That is the original design. But for you and I, God put the provision of the certificate of divorce in anticipation of us breaking our marriage to law and everything that the law brought, that we may be married to Christ in whom there's no divorce. That's the original design. Okay? Christ will never seek for divorce from the church because there's nothing that is happening in the church that he does not know anything about. He knows exactly the kind of woman that he's getting married to. Okay? So Matthew 19, verse 9. Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another, 
woman commits adultery. So Jesus says this is the exception clause. Exception clause. The woman should be divorced only for immorality. And that's exactly the reason why you've been divorced from the law. Because you can't keep it. You're not righteous. That's why you were divorced from it. That's why God put the clause for you to be able to be divorced from it. Because you could not remain under the law and being immoral as a sinner and expect to have life. You have to be divorced from it. Because Christ cannot marry you as long as you remain under the law. Okay? But there's a, the Greek word here that is translated uh, as um, immorality. It's ponea. You can hear pornography and stuff from that word. It has a very wide semantic range, and we won't, we don't have time to go into it. But the point is this. The point is, in respect of our relationship to God, we are all sinners. Viewed as a woman married, we are immoral, suffering from the hardness of heart. And thus, to remain married to the law in this condition of hardness of heart and immorality would mean no salvation in the context of the sinner because the law could never make propitiation for the sins of an adulteress. The law could not. It did nothing to make it right for you as a sinner, as someone whose heart is hardened. And that is why in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, God says, I will give them a new heart. I'll put my spirit in them. That's the beginning of the curing of the issues that this bride has. God now has to rework the bride in Christ. And in Christ, now we are made a new creation. But it comes from us having been divorced from the law. That provision is necessary. There has to be a certificate. So the certificate of divorce was given as a necessary clause in the law to allow for the church to be divorced from the covenant of the law and be married to another him who died, him who resurrected from the dead, that we may bear fruit to God, that we may serve God in the newness of life. We needed that certificate of divorce. If that certificate of divorce is not issued, is not given, then by God, you cannot be married to Christ. It will be an illegal marriage. Just as the woman in Romans 7 could not be recognized as legally married if her husband had not died. So the certificate of divorce and the death of the husband are essentially giving the woman the legal right to be married again. See the point? That is the proper theological understanding of the whole matter. And to amplify 
the truth of what I'm saying here, the Lord's saying, this sovereignty statement in answer to his own disciples. Let's go back to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, 10 to 11. So the disciples were in hearing of the conversation and they said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. And they're like, okay, no, no, I'm doing that. I am not dealing with this. Uh, this certificate of divorce and stuff like that, it's too complicated for me. <laughs> I went out of it. They still did not get it either. It was not about human marriages. It was about law and gospel, connections, relations. But here Jesus answered, verse 11. But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. Bingo. Jesus could not have said that if this was just a matter of human marriages and their divorce. Jesus is saying, this was a much higher spiritual conversation that they did not have ability to comprehend. Then, as it is today, apart from the Holy Spirit, illuminating the understanding of the minds in respect of Christ and salvation. In other words, the matter of law and divorce is not a simple matter dealing with human marriages. Its true meaning and significance is only realized to those and in those who have been given the understanding. It is not for everybody to understand this. In other words, according to Jesus, it is a matter of revelation by God to understand how these relate to Christ and the gospel. Therefore, instruction in the truth of the gospel. And by this, we do not mean either that people should just divorce because a lot of people have their ears clogged already. They don't want to listen. Because they're thinking about their marriages. I'm like, no, it's about Jesus. We're not saying people should go and divorce. There's a whole lot of basis in the gospel to help with marriage issues. But that's not the subject of our message. And that's not the subject of Matthew 19. Jesus is talking Moses by way of certificate of divorce. Now, we'll finish this way. Let's go to Moses to hear what he said about the matter. We are working our way back. From Romans 7 to Matthew 19, now we're going to go to Deuteronomy 24. The Pharisees who came to Jesus in Matthew 19 had Deuteronomy 24 in their mind. Beginning at verse 1. Moses says in Deuteronomy verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24 verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. So if the man at his discretion finds or found something that 
he did not like about his wife some indecency. It doesn't matter how to him, how petty. We do not know the extent of the parameters, but it was not adultery in this case because adultery was not solved by a certificate of divorce under the law, but by stoning, as we know from the woman caught in adultery in Leviticus 20 also. But this is another angle of the law that God is bringing to teach us of the gospel. And so if the husband found something not pleasing him about his wife, even a little bit, do not like her anymore, he was supposed to write a certificate of divorce and hand it to her, and the woman was sent out of the house. Stop and pay attention. The woman has been sent out of the house. She has been sent out of the covenant of her husband. Once the woman had the certificate of divorce in her hand and was out of the house, she was no longer under the law of her husband, which means she's not under the law of Moses. So the Deuteronomy is already anticipating that once you have your certificate of divorce from the law, you are not under the covenant of the law anymore. You're going to be under the covenant of the man that you're going to meet and be married to. And it's in the text. We're going to work it. So she was out of the covenant with her husband. So what would happen as she had this certificate of divorce? Verse 2. She leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. So in this case, she had the legal right to be married to another Become another man's wife. Another man who was willing to deal with her issues for which she got the certificate of divorce. How could it be that she would find a man who would take her without her having issues with her issues? <laughs> she lied on a Facebook profile. <laughs> Slide on an Instagram account. Verse 3. We're almost done. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife. So the woman, if she was notoriously bad and she ended up getting another certificate of divorce, just racking up divorce papers, and is sent out, or the later husband dies, who took her to be his wife. This is what would happen. So, verse 3 adds another provision and say, in the event that the new husband also dies, what would become of her? So it seems that the law was very much invested in the welfare and the movement of the woman to protect it. Why? Because the woman represents Christ. I mean, represents the church of Christ. So there has to be all provision to make sure that as she is moving in the different marriages, she is protected. Okay? Verse 4. This is what will happen. Let me read verse 3 so that we have flow of thought. 
And if the latter husband turns out against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, verse 4, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her back to be his wife. Since she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. That's clear teaching. And there's none who can explain that verse 4 apart from the gospel. And I know a person who has expressed hatred for this Deuteronomy clause of marriage and divorce under the law because they are heavily invested in their own marriage and they found this to be offensive that a woman who has been divorced and gotten married when she gets divorced, she's not allowed to go back to her original husband, which a lot of people will tell you to do. And they would be using the law to say that. This goes against that. How is it that the law prohibited a woman to be reconciled to her former husband, even if her new husband has divorced or even died for no cause of her own. That has to be interrogated because it does not make sense. You would think that the law would be encouraging the woman to go back to her former husband, especially if the former husband had some liking for her and they could have had many children together, may have had two, eight children together. Why make such a seemingly cruel provision, seemingly anti-family provision, be part of the law? But this goes against building a family because it is speaking not of human marriages. It is not speaking of human divorce. The woman who is divorced from the husband is the church that is being given a certificate of divorce by the law. A certificate of divorce would mean that she had no other entanglements that would jeopardize the legality of a second marriage to Christ. So this was issued for her own protection and with every wedding, you want to hear whoever is conducting the marriage ceremony asking everybody in the congregation and say, is there anyone who knows anything that will get in the way of these getting married? Basically, they're raising legal issues. Was Sean married before? If he was married, did he dissolve that marriage? Was Katie married before? Did she dissolve the marriage? That's essentially what is being said here. Okay? So she wills her certificate of divorce. And she is married to another man. Married to another husband. 
But if in the event of her getting divorced again or her husband died, she could not go back to her former husband. And that means once the elect have been married to Christ, they cannot go back to their former husband. That was the point. They cannot go back to the law. Once you have been married to Christ, you cannot go back to the law, the former husband. That's the New Testament teaching, repeated over and over. Teaching in the Old Testament, teaching in the, Old, in the New Testament. The law would have been their former husband. So God is saying, God is saying, remarriage to the law after Christ has been revealed, after Christ has died, after Christ has ended the marriage to Moses is a forbidden marriage. It doesn't matter how seemingly good you may think you had it under the law, God does not acknowledge the marriage. It is a gospel law distinction that is being made in Deuteronomy. Okay? So this matter, Paul wrote furiously to the Galatians and said, Galatians 3, so what Paul said in Galatians 3, 1 to 5, I think we have two, three more minutes, and we'll be done. Messages like this, I don't preach as often, so we bring as much detail for the sake of those who have never heard the arguments. I cannot just assume that people know all these little details. So I have to hammer them in and record them and post them. We may make a reference of them 50 sermons from today. Galatians 3, 1 to 5. It was the matter of wanting to get married to the former husband. The Galatians, to Galatians, to the Galatians Christians, Paul said, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? That's the distinction of the covenants. Did you get all your blessings from the law or by grace? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and the works, miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Again, that's distinction, 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 distinction between law and grace. So what were the Galatians trying to do? They were trying to seek reconciliation and marriage with the former husband, which is the law, which is Moses. And Paul said, you are bewitched, you are foolish. And what did the Hebrew Christians in the book of Hebrews get in trouble for? They were trying to get back with the former husband. The law, and they got a rebuke. They got some serious theological teaching on law and gospel because of it. And that's all I am saying. That the matter of law and gospel distinctions are so central to the proper dividing of the scriptures and also of the gospel and also of faith. 
And God presented the matter, the same matter, in many different ways just to hammer home the truth. So, in conclusion, the law actually says if one has been divorced, they cannot go back to their former husband. And that is a sticky situation that many would not want to talk about because many use the law unrighteously to beat back people to their former abusive husbands. But this tells me that we are not reading these things correctly in reference to Christ because the gospel is not being used as the interpretive greed of the matter. So there are two aspects of the law that ends marriage with everything that I've said. This is what you need to remember. It's Paul's point. That there are two aspects of the law that ends marriage and they were given as a provision in the law looking to Christ's appearance. Number one is divorce. So divorce was put in there to anticipate the breaking of the old covenant as Christ appeared to establish the new. Also, the certificate of divorce was speaking and anticipating to the same thing, that at some point, all of God's people had to be divorced from their marriage to the law, that they may be married legally to Christ. Okay, so in the light of Christ, this is what we have been given to know. The redeemed died to the law. They have been set free from the law that they may be married to another. And they cannot be going back to seek reconciliation with Moses, their old husband, because God says they are now defiled by reason of having another husband who is Christ. The redeemed are not under law, but are under grace. And in grace, we bear fruit unto life. We bear fruit that is acceptable to God. And this is a very happy marriage in which there's no divorce ever. God be praised. Amen. Amen. <laughs> we are done. I'm going to say, go back and really listen to the arguments. There's a lot of arguments. There's a lot of arguments. And I have no time to go back and do part two, part three, part five. No, I have a whole lot of other arguments to make still about the law, about Christ. I pray this has been a fruitful teaching. I'm not undermining human marriages, but I'm arguing that there's a higher truth that is not being respected, and people have reduced the truth of God to their own things. And Christ has taken the back seat, and we cannot accept that. Let's go before him in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these many words that you've spoken. Thank you for revealing these wonderful truths to us because of Christ. 
And we actually thank you for the provision that you've given of the certificate of divorce because apart from it, we could not be divorced from the law. We could not be divorced from the condemnation of the law. We thank you for the fact that our old husband died and with him the sin, the condemnation, and with him the fulfillment of the law that we may be married to Christ and bear fruit unto God. We thank you for all who listen to this message. We pray that you will teach them and convict them by the Spirit that this is the truth of God. Lord, we honor you, glorify you for things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, good people. We are still in Romans next week. We'll pick up from Romans 7. <laughs>